So we continue with the Bible reading of God's Word, and it's Genesis chapter 30. I encourage you to look in your Bibles or look on the screen as we uh, listen to God's Word. Verse 20. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and it seemed to him a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah, brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is it that you have done to me? Did I not serve you, serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country, to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete, complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob, Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his, servant, uh, to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. Verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. How are you this morning? How is your wife? How is your husband? How is your father? How is your mother? How are, how are your daughters? How are your sons? How is your family? And that's not an unimportant question to ask, all those questions. And so yesterday we had our first on-site membership class since COVID-19 began and we had to suspend services and like we are resuming now for the very first time. So we praise God for the numbers that came and class ARPC and two couples brought their children. And so for two hours, the kids just sat down there in the class and they were very good. Immediately after the class, as they came up to hand in their forms to apply to become members by baptism or by transfers, by confirmation, this young couple with this young boy came up and says, my name is Tadius, right? And so I asked, how old are you? And then he said, he sat through the thing and he understood things. And uh, he looked at our handbook, he got a copy of the handbook and pointed to things. And I do not know, as I spoke to him and that couple, and spoke to another lady who was going to bring her child for baptism, that those families are okay. They are okay because despite all the inconveniences, despite everything that the virus has thrown at them, their commitment to Christ 
shown and expressed in their commitment to church is really high. So I asked again, how are you and how is your family? And so we had wonderful assurances that the families are okay. But as we asked that along the line, how are you? How are your parents? How are your children? How is your family? Is there peace? Is there war in your hearts and in your home? Are your families places of building each other up or places of tearing each other down? Are your homes, is there love in your home or hatred in your home? Are there the words spoken in your family? Are they words of encouragement or are they words of accusation? And you ask, and you ask, does it matter? Does it matter what happens in our heart? Does it matter what words we speak to each other? Does it matter how we live? Does it matter how we relate to each other? Does it matter whether our families are blossoming, our families are broken down? And the answer is yes, it matters. It matters to God. It matters. And it's going to come out in a huge way in this passage. And so they tell of the new president-elect, Joe Biden, that he walked through his childhood house where he grew up. And it so happened to be Scranton, Pennsylvania. It so happened to be the same place that Paul Tripp, who has come to speak to us, it was his first church that he pastored, Scranton, Pennsylvania, a very poor area in America, as I understand. And so he scribbled on one of the walls of his childhood home, from this house to the White House, with the grace of God, when he ran for president in 2008. From this poor and powerless home, to the most powerful house in the land. Let me ask you, after this sermon, after this service, how many of you will go back and scribble and scramble on, on, on your HDB wall? Please ask permission from your parents first. Right? From this house to the Istana. From this house to the Prime Ministership. It's so profound, it's so lofty, it's so unimaginable to scribble that on our walls. He came from a poor family, but he has the highest, loftiest ambitions. Why am I emphasizing family? Because the story of the Bible, the story of the gospel, the grand story of salvation is the story told in families. What happens in families not just has earthly consequences, but eternal consequences. So where are we now in Genesis 28 to 29? We are now in the tale of two brothers, Esau and Jacob. And we know, as we read that account from chapter 26 onwards, it's a story of sibling rivalry. So let me ask you, sibling rivalry, the thing that you have in your heart against your brother, your sister, began when? Maybe it began when you started play and you didn't like your brother or your sister. It began then. Or maybe it began in school when your, your sibling started to perform better than you or your sibling turned out to be more talented than you. This sibling rivalry between Esau and Jacob began before birth and ran all the way through their veins and their arteries as they grew up. So Esau uh, is described as red. And so they say Esau, if modern day terms, he would have started red mud. And then Jacob, what business would he start? He started grab. That wasn't my thought. It was shared among the, the leaders as we were doing our Bible studies, which tells you it's very comforting that our leaders are very creative in understanding God's Word. 
So here we are more seriously. We are now meeting the third couple of redemption. The first couple of creation, Adam and Eve. The first couple in God's redemption story, Abraham and Sarah. The second couple, Isaac and Rebekah. And here is Jacob and his future wife. So huge portions that we're dealing with, we've just read that. I expect and encourage you to keep looking at the Bible as I read them so that you'll be engaging and listening. We are back to no frills, no frills, no slights. It's just hearing the Word of God for what it is. Okay? So a possible outline of this portion as we read this part again. Chapter 28, verse 10. Jacob left Bathsheba and went to Haran. And he came to a certain place and there and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put, his, put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth to the top it reached to the heaven. And so a possible outline as you read these two chapters is, it begins here, a deserving fugitive. And then it moves on to an undeserving dreamer. And then it ends with what I call a payback marriage. So firstly, why, is, why does it start with a deserving fugitive, Jacob? A deserving fugitive serves him right fugitive because when you read in chapter 27, chapter 27, what had happened, he had tricked his father. He had cheated his elder brother of his inheritance. And so he was so hated by his brother. And what kind of hatred is that? This is not a little bit of frustration with your brother or sister, a little bit of irritation with your brother or sister. This was murderous hatred. So murderous that his brother Esau had an assassination plot, uh, assassination ideation of, of his brother Jacob. And this assassination plot was discovered by their mother. And so Rebekah, who loved Jacob more, came and told Jacob, leave home. Leave home to escape the murderous anger of your brother. Leave home and find refuge where? Refuge in, in mom's hometown. Go there. And how long? We do not know how long. But it says, until your brother's anger turns away. Until his heart softens. And friends, sometimes when you wrong each other in families, that sibling rivalry, that hatred that you have against a loved one within your four walls can last for a long time. Isn't that true? Yes. He goes on not for years, but for decades, until his brother's anger turns away. And if you read in advance the whole story of Genesis to chapter 50, this is a very sad point because as Rebecca sends Jacob away. She never sees him again. Have you ever, have you ever send, said goodbye to someone, never to see them again? This was the most frightening thing and still is the most frightening thing about COVID-19. You get infected with this, you're diagnosed straight into ICU if it hurts you, and once you're in ICU, nobody visits you. And the repeated, repeated testimony of people who are infected and people who are dying is they say to the nurses, they say to the doctors, please don't let me die here all by myself. For for many of us, at least even when we are dying, your family can visit you for the last time. 
and pray with you for the last time and sing to you for the last time to encourage you as you walk through the valley of death to say goodbye. This is the goodbye in which they never meet again. And so all that is backdrop. The distance between Beersheba and Haran, we said, is 900 kilometers. You know what 900 kilometers is? From here to Malacca is about 200 plus. From here to Kuala Lumpur is about 400 kilometers. From here to Penang or to the Thai border, if you travel up to Malaysia, once it opens up, that's about 900 to 1,000 kilometers. But you don't travel by plane, you don't travel by car, you travel by camels. It's a very long distance. He has now started on his journey towards Haran. And they estimate he's probably traveled about 55 miles by now. He's, you ever walk 55 miles? So you read the Straits Times, there were two journalists who started a walk all around Singapore. Took them, I think, four or five days to do that walk. One day we should try it, taking that walk. So Jacob walks. He's exhausted. He's alone. He's lonely. And he's alone. You know how Jacob is described? Esau is described as a hunter. He's an extrovert. He's out there, right? But Jacob is described, our first introduction to him is that he was a homebody. He was described as a quiet man. Somebody who was a son who was domesticated, right? And so he's all alone. He's lonely. There is sadness in seeing him. He's under the sky. He's exposed to danger. Danger from the robbers, potential robbers, danger from predators. As the sun set, he laid down to sleep. And he laid down to sleep in an unknown place, in an unnamed place. Have you ever, have you ever gotten a call from your wife or your husband if you're coming back late? Oh, where are you now, Chris? If Mona calls me, where are you now, Chris? And I say to her, I don't know. What do you think she would think? Something suspicious, right? Chris is, and, and I don't know land. This is unnamed. This is unknown. And then, as he lays down to sleep, he puts a stone for his pillow, a very common thing that they did out in the wilderness under the stars and the sky. And then he dreams. And the dreams has three parts to it. He sees, he sees a ladder set up on earth, reaching up to the heavens. Secondly, he sees a divine escalator, and on this divine escalator, the main pedestrians are angels ascending and descending. Ascending and descending. That's a good escalator to get on. And either beside him or on top of the ladder is the Lord standing at the top of the ladder. And so, what do you make of this dream? So we could have dreams, but dreams without interpretation equals to zero. He awakes and then he acknowledges this. He acknowledges that God is in this place. So far from this being an indifferent place, an unnamed place, so th this word appears many times in this first part, or in this part of chapter 28. Unnamed place, unnamed place, unnamed place. Six times. Previously, this was a nothing and no meaning place. But by the end of this dream, he calls this a spiritual milestone. He calls it battle. 
And why is this important? Because he understood this dream to be the house of God, the house of God where God dwells, and the gate of heaven where we can access into God's presence. So notice, friends, this, no, this unnamed place becomes a very important spiritual milestone. A spiritual milestone of what? Up to this point, we actually do not know whether Jacob actually knew God in his own life. His was maybe like a hand-me-down faith, like many of us in Christian homes. But from this dream and encounter, he now own, owns his walk with God, his faith in God. God is not an idea to him. God is not history to him. God is a personal God to him from this point onwards. And what does God promise him? What does God promise him? God promises him three things. Descendants who will live in the land, descendants given by God who will live in the land that God gives him, and as he goes there, he will be a blessing to all peoples. And so, these blessings sound very familiar. They are exactly the same blessings that God gave to Abraham, the same blessings that God gave to Isaac. And so from this point onwards, he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Please notice the difference. Please notice the difference. And the significance of this encounter of God in this dream. Who was Jacob again? And what was his circumstances? Hated by his brother, murderous hatred. He was a runaway fugitive. He is all alone in danger. And what does God say to him on top of the three promises he made to Abraham and Isaac? On top of that, God says, I will always be with you. He's a fugitive. He's all alone in danger. And God promises him his presence and his protection. Right now, Jacob is homeless. And what does God promise him? He's homeless. He doesn't have a roof over his head. And God promises him a land, an eternal land for his many descendants, as many. And God, what does God promise him? At this moment, he has no wife. But God promises descendants as un uncountable as the dust of the earth. So dust. I'm, I've got a real encounter with dust. Our, our toilet in, uh, in our home in the church building has not been working for a year. And finally now, COVID-19, some contractors come in and, and they're drilling it and finding a way to fold in and, and, and then giving us, my goodness, when you do renovation, when you're still living there, right? I'm sure many of you have experienced it. The amount of dust, the amount of fine dust, every day, every day as they come in to drill, to do their work, more dust. I could sweep, I could mop, but there's dust everywhere. That's why I look so tired. You can't see through the shield. And so God says to Jacob, who doesn't have a wife, he's en route to find a wife, that his descendants are going to be as uncountable as the dust of the earth. Right now, as he sits under, he sleeps under the open sky, there is no future for himself. But God promises that through him, he will be a blessing to people who come from the north and the south and the east and the west. He can't even bless himself. So what do you call that? A God who knows how to meet us in our greatest needs. 
whatever you do not know about the gospel is the story of God who knows how to meet us in our greatest need. And there's a change, a huge change. And what is that change? He goes from the fear of his brother, a fear of men, a fear of his circumstances. He's all alone without his mom who loves him. And now he's transported to a rightful fear of God. And that is a big transformation, a transformation from the wrongful fear of men and the wrongful fear of circumstances, the wrongful fear of the past, the wrongful fear of the present, the wrongful fear of the future, to a rightful reverence of God. When he left, he was at war with his brother, but when he returns, the dream seems to promise he will return in peace with his brother. And so when you look at that, the transformation from fear of men and circumstances to fear of God, and the transformation from war with our siblings in our family to peace in our siblings in our family. That's what God and faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob can do. This God is a master of doing what? This God is a master of turning war into peace. And that's the story of rescue the story of redemption. And so this becomes a spiritual milestone. The opening passage that we read, if you remember, is taken from John chapter 1, verse 47 to 51. And there Jesus directly remembers this incident and Jesus refers to this. And why does he refer to Jacob's dream? Because now Jesus in his earthly life and ministry completing God's rescue story is actually saying here is now the new meeting place between God and between God and sinful men. The access to the holy God, the access given to sinners who have turned against the holy God is through none other than Jesus through his death, his resurrection. And so friends, that is the first portion for us to understand all that's happening here. By chapter 29, he now moves on. Moves on to what? He's this undeserving dreamer who has now gotten a glimpse that God will bring a turnaround not just in his life, but in him and through him in a mysterious, unthinkable way, God will bring a turnaround to the whole human race. And by the time we join the dot point to the Lord Jesus Christ, we know how that has come. In chapter 29, we come to the third part, what I call a payback marriage. Why is it a payback marriage? Because this, this whole dating scene, right, this whole matchmaking scene is very reminiscent. It echoes and reminds us of Abraham sending his unnamed servant, his trusted unnamed servant, to find a wife for Isaac. Remember that? But there are huge differences. Huge differences. And notice in the Bible's matchmaking, it always happens at a well. So the joke in ARPC is that we should build more water coolers all around the building. So we're going to put a lot in ARPC at Tengah because many things can happen around the water, the, the water cooler. Right? So what happens around this well? What happens around this well? Remember in chapter 24, it was recorded 
when Abraham sent the servant, before he went, he prayed. And he prayed a very specific prayer that God will show him among the many women who will come to the well to draw water, to draw water for themselves, their families, and for their animals. This woman will stand out. And it so turned out to Rebecca. Did you notice as he arrives here, Jacob, there is no account of him thinking God's thoughts, of him praying arrow prayers to God. It is still divine providence, but there is no prayer to God to guide him. That gives you a little bit of insight to the person, the heart, the character of Jacob at this point. And so it unfolds. And as it unfolds, it becomes a wonderful love story from verse 9 onwards. While he was still speaking, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother Jacob, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered. So the moment he saw her, what did he do? He flexed his muscles. He was trying to be impressive. And you know, it's not a small stone, it's a huge stone, and it probably takes a few feathers, but he's strong enough to roll that away. And then it's a public PDA, public display of affection, right? It's, it's a bit embarrassing. He just runs up to Rachel and kisses her. And you would expect that in modern day, this would not be acceptable, but it was the meeting of, of relatives that he had found what his mother had sent him to find. And so it's all the background. And then Laban. Hey, this sounds familiar again. Laban. He welcomes him. But again, there's a difference. The same thing run, run in Laban's vein. The only reason he was very open with generosity was that Rebecca came back and she bore gifts. And we see that Laban was money-eyed and money-centered. Then as he meets now Jacob, he notices there's a difference between him meeting Jacob all these years later and him meeting the unnamed servant sent by Abraham. When he met the unnamed servant, he was rich, a symbol that his master was superbly, abundantly well endowed. When he meets Jacob, Jacob is a runaway fugitive. The only thing he has is literally, figuratively, the shirt on his back. And that's why he's not so keen. And now you see Laban, the true colors of him. And so he notices that Jacob right, has fallen head over heels in love. This is one of the best love stories in the Bible with Rachel. And the description of Rachel, the second description of her, Leah's eyes were weak. Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. And sometimes when we read this, the woman might say, I always knew all men are shallow. Only go for looks. Lah. We don't know, but it's here. Twice it's described, the women are beautiful. right? Leah's eyes are weak. But it is so, it's not just that men are so shallow. It's so real. It's so raw. It's so you and me outside the Garden of Eden. We see what we like, we take what we like, we always judge life by the skin. We always judge people by the looks. And that's life. 
And so Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter. Because he brought no wealth and no gifts, and in a time when you wanted to marry, you always need to pay a bright price. You always need to pay what we call a dowry. And he who had nothing but a shirt on his back and the murderous anger of his brother in his past and the memory of his beloved mother and the blessing of his father, that's all he had. And so he promised seven years. But isn't this the classic love storyline? So Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days. Isn't that amazing? So oftentimes when we marry people in church, we, send them, we get them to come to MPR, we ask them, how long have you dated each other? How long have you courted each other? And sometimes when they say, what, 10 years, we've known each other from JC, from junior college, they say, my goodness, that's a solid one. That's a solid one. 10 years. He's willing to work seven years, and the seven years felt like nothing. When you're in love, it's a little bit like that. So that was Jacob, flesh and blood. From this point onwards, how does it turn out? That was the good part of it. From verse 21 onwards, it becomes totally a nightmare. Finally, he had served his seven years of labor for the bright price. Finally, there is a feast. Finally, there's the wedding. Finally, there's the banquet. Finally, he gets his bride whom he has been longing for, whom he has loved from a distance. They say that Rachel was very young when he first met her. 11, 12, so waiting 7, 8 years. She's now maybe 17, 18, closer to the age. And so he waited. And guess what? Turns out to be Leah. And you say, can he be so blur? It's all happening at night. Lah. So a bit of fisting, a bit of drinking maybe, and it's dark, and it happens. The next day he wakes up, and it's Leah. We as modern-day people who live with artificial lighting cannot believe such an account. Can it be so dark? Can it be so dark? To realize this, you have to go and travel in America or travel in Africa or travel in Australia out in the wilderness and it's just you and the stars. It can be so dark. When you walk into a forest or a jungle and you can't see the palm right in front of you, it can be so dark. This is not an unbelievable incident. It's not an unbelievable passage of Scripture. It can be. And he woke up to his horror that it wasn't Rachel, it was Leah. And so Laban, his excuse for that, in, in, in our country, in our culture, is not right to marry off the younger one, but to marry off the older one. So let's strike a deal, right? Uh, let's strike a deal. If you really want Rachel, you just do the seven days and then you can have her and then do seven more years. What do you call Laban? What's happening here? Lots of things. Lots of things which are very sad. So it's a payback marriage. There are many characters, but one God's one story of redemption. And as we started, Salvation is told in and through families, through the words, through the decisions and the actions. And so the first thing to note as we understand what's happening here is verse 25. 
Jacob accused Laban of deceiving, deceiving him. Why have you beguiled me? Why have you deceived me? Guess what? It's exactly the same root word that is used when Jacob deceived his father. And then it goes on. Second, when Laban offered his explanation to Jacob, he used the word firstborn, firstborn. And some words are trigger words, you know. I've used this example a few times. There was a court case early this year. And in a court case, right, this husband just murdered his wife. And in the court case that unfolded, what caused him to murder his wife? The wife in a, in a conversation that was unpleasant, in a fight that they had, he was unemployed, he was trying to look for a job, he couldn't find a job, couldn't hold down a job, and the wife said to him, you're useless. That word has been used of him all his life by his parents. Some words we use in marriage and in family are trigger words. Firstborn would have been a trigger word for Jacob. Because why? Because he cheated his brother, the firstborn, of his inheritance. So two things would have struck him as he met Laban. And one of the two things that would have struck him, he beguiled his own father. He cheated his own brother of his inheritance as firstborn. And the third thing is the whole word from the Hebrew, serve, serve, serve. It appears, it appears seven times in this small portion. And why is the word serve so important? Because Rebekah, when she was pregnant, forecast that the older Esau will serve the younger Jacob. Her blessing contained the phrase, let the peoples serve you. Isaac confirmed this, saying to Esau, I have given him all his brothers for servants. Esau, you shall serve your brother. But now the spin or the twist or the irony, the gospel irony, it is Jacob who must do the serving. So, what do we have here? What we have here, the trust of this incident and this story, is that Jacob has met his match. He has met his match of the beguiler in Laban. Jacob the deceiver meets his ultimate deceiver. And this is not an unimportant lesson for us. So why did Jacob run away when you think about it humanly? He ran away to escape Esau's anger. He ran away to find a wife instructed by his mother, blessed by his father. But from God's perspective, Jacob was running away, unknown to him to fulfill God's promises of descendants of land and of global eternal blessings. Jacob, a study of him, his name means grasper. And so he is grasper, he becomes a schemer, he becomes a deceiver. He's a grasper or grabber because he takes from what is not rightly his. He's a schemer because he takes advantage of Esau's weakness. As we saw in the passage and heard in the sermon last week, he knew that, he knew, right, that Esau had a weakness for his belly. He knew that his father also had a weakness for his belly. 
And then from grasper, schemer, he became deceiver. He thought he could keep taking in life, he could keep cutting corners and still succeed and prosper. But in this encounter with Laban, with the encounter with Laban, he was not just meeting his match in Laban, he was meeting his God. And what do we mean by that? What do we mean by that? He would soon realize that this deception of Laban was actually designed by God to make him, Jacob the deceiver, know that this way of doing things is not God's way of doing things. Though ultimately God in his sovereignty will bless him. And so the lesson for him, 7 plus 7, 14 years to get the woman he loves. What does that tell you? Sometimes the more you want something, the more God purifies your motives. The sooner you want something, the longer the delay. And so, all the bitter irony here, Jacob, once the subject of deceit, now becomes the object of deceit. Jacob, the perpetrator of sabotage, now becomes the victim of sabotage. He pretended to be Esau in front of Jacob. Leah pretends to be Rachel in front of Jacob. It comes full round to him. And so, lessons for us. There is no such thing as sin and sinning without repercussions. The sins of the past will always catch up to us in the present. What goes round must come around. When we sow sin, it will come back with the repercussions of sin. So sin comes back to haunt him, and you do to others what you have them do to you. And so you never do to others what you don't want them to do to you. What does that do for us as we read all this? So he serves out seven more years, and then this account has to end with, when the Lord saw Leah, Leah, Leah was hated. He opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son. She called his name Reuben. And you see, the word hated is basically Leah was unloved. So how many of you have experienced unrequited love? Don't put up your hands, just in case you're talking about your previous girlfriend or boyfriend. Then your husband and wife sitting there, really? Have you ever experienced unrequited love? Unrequited love is perhaps the most painful love because you've poured all your heart and time and energy to wooing the love of the person only to be spurned. So when it says, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved or hated by Jacob, the compassionate God opened her womb and then opens the womb many times. And each son that she has, she is, she is hoping against hope that with every son she bears, she would slowly but surely earn the love of Jacob, which she never earns. Because his heart and the apple of his eye would remain Rachel, Rachel, Rachel. And so, 
a deserving fugitive for what he did, an undeserving dreamer that God would indeed open up access to him and promise him his presence and his protection and blessings to him and through him, a payback marriage. When you add those three things up, a deserving fugitive, an undeserving dreamer, a payback marriage equals to God's undeserving redemption. God's undeserving rescue. And then there's a story, now that we are dealing with couple number three, the third couple of redemption. And with each one, you must start to ask the question, if you experience this in your life, right, what can we do? What can we do about a parent's favoritism? Your father loves your sister more than you. What on earth can you do about your father's favoritism towards, uh, towards your sister and his biasness against you? What can you do about a sibling's murderous hatred that he'll only be satisfied if you disappear from planet Earth? I want my titi to go away. I want my coco to go away. What can you do about that? What can you do about Jacob's deeply seated repetitive recalcitrant deception, the grabber, grabbing, grabbing, lying, lying. What can you do with Uncle Laban's cunningness, which was more deceptive than the nephew? What can you do for Leah about her unrequited love? Just keep having more babies, just keep having more babies, just give, just give Jacob what he wants, give him Give him the intimacy and give him the sons. Give him the intimacy and give him the sons. What can you do about Rachel's jealousy? As Leah becomes fertile and her womb is open. What can, what can you do about the concubines through whom, through whom Jacob will have more sons? To each of those questions, I hope you can tell me by the time you read Genesis 29, because there's a pattern that they are all impossible, humanly impossible to do anything about. But what is humanly impossible is totally doable in the hands of the Almighty God. That is the story of the Bible. That is the heart of the Gospel. That is the story of Christianity. So when Jesus comes, he comes to meet us as our greatest need. Our greatest need is living autonomous lives, rebellious lives against God, where we take things into our hands. And the dream that Jacob dreamed was the direct opposite of the Tower of Babel. When we dream of united nations, united to live in godless lives, united to live autonomous lives, I don't need God to tell me what to think. I don't need God to tell me what to do. I don't need God to tell me how to control my speech and bring about speech therapy in my life. I don't need God. We meet a God who does the impossible. And did you know every matriarch of the four patriarchs, the, the impossible thing is that each of them was barren. The story of the gospel is God doing the impossible, bringing life out of death, bringing hope when you experience a dead end in your life and my life. So, 
How is it going in your family? How are the relationships between husband and wife? How are things going with your children? Do you ever read the testimonies that we put out when we have baptism? Right? So I just pull out randomly. I just ask God to show me which one should I look at. And this one is written and says, uh, I grew up in a Christian family, but around my upper primary years, I slipped into a phase where I began to doubt my faith, reasoning that any religion and all religions are false. There's no, no way to know exactly which one was the true one. I became less and less interested in attending church and then stopped altogether. My trust in God changed when I joined BASIC. For the first few weeks, I was unsure and awkward. But after attending a few years and joining several BASIC camps, God started to speak to me more and more through His Word in the bubble studies, in the talks and the documentaries I watched. And slowly but surely, I gave my life to Him. What can you do when your son or your daughter already in upper primary and the circle of friends that she or he hangs around already think that God and believing in God is really a joke? You must be a joke. What can you do when they choose their friends and they choose what they listen to? You do nothing. There is nothing you can do. But pray. Pray that God will break in and bring around the miraculous turnaround in a teenager's hardening heart. And then another one. Right? It was, I grew up in a Christian home, and if you asked me at that time, all those years, do you believe in God? Hey, yeah, sure, God exists. So what? And then, when I was 14, my family took me on vacation to Tokyo. And there somehow, in very safe Tokyo, one of the safest places in the world to visit, the city and the country, that's why so many Singaporeans go every year, and there in very safe Tokyo, I somehow managed to break my arm. <laughs> we were faced with a dilemma. As we could not stay in Japan long enough for the doctors there to properly oversee my recovery, nor could we get on a flight home soon enough to carry out the operation in Singapore. So what? I broke my arm overseas and I'm stuck in no man's land. But it just so happened that a longtime family friend of ours who grew up in Japan and could sp speak fluent Japanese, was also a doctor, was taking a vacation in Tokyo at the same time, and was able to write a doctor's letter declaring me well enough to travel. Then, as it just so happened, my uncle had a friend who managed flights in a nearby airport and could transfer our flight so we could return home the next day. Then it just so happened that we had a family friend who was taken uh, to A&E as a uh, a family friend who worked at KKH, right, Kanankabra Hospital, and could ensure I was taken to A&E as soon as I landed. And so for him, this was his, this was his battle, spiritual milestone that turned him around. So as you sit here listening with your children and your families, and you sit here listening with your parents, Whatever you think is humanly impossible to do, the heart that is so lied to by Satan, so lied to by the world, so deceived by your own deceptive heart, can be turned around by God through Christ, our Saviour and our Lord. A deserving fugitive, an undeserving dreamer, a payback marriage, all woven in by the great God 
of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to bring us to salvation in Christ and Christ alone. How is your family? Do you see hope in your family? I pray with all my heart that that will be true. Amen.